DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being here for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Lots to talk about, including a new candidate in the uh, U.S. Senate race, the Democratic Senate race uh, against David Perdue. Um, We're joined today by Mary Margaret Oliver, state representative from Decatur. Mary Margaret, I have missed you. You've had a busy summer. You're just back from a week at A Beach. Do we tell people, do we disclose publicly where you go for vacation or no? One of the places I went this summer is Southwest Harbor, Maine, which is a fabulous place. Absolutely wonderful. I'm glad you're back. We missed you. you. Thank you. Uh, We're also joined by Mark Rountree, a Republican pollster, political consultant. He runs Landmark Communications. I have, you need, you know, I say whenever you're in here, Mark, that in addition to your Republican credentials, which are are certainly uh, there, you have been a pollster for media organizations. Channel 2 News has used you over the years. And, and, and I've always said you are one of the most um, fair-minded, uh, straightforward pollsters out there, despite your Republican credentials. Despite? Well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> my, my point is you're not, you're not off there, you know, you no, know twisting numbers for Republicans. And 538... Nate Silver's uh, online publication, which rates polling uh, organizations, you shared an article with me that puts you up in like one of the top most trustworthy polling firms, right? Yes. Um, (laughs) Well, when we release a poll, we don't do what a lot of polling companies do in the end, and we don't do what's called advocacy polling. We don't get hired to come up with a result. We, if we release a result. We believe it's true. Yeah. Now, we can be wrong, but we believe it's true, and we do a lot of quality control. And the story you're talking about, um, 538 named us one of the 19 most trusted pollsters in the country. Yeah. And they use metrics to determine that that are so far beyond my mathematic abilities that all I say is, that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) I won't complain as long as they have us up there. Okay. (laughs) Dove Wilker joins us today, too. He is the uh, regional director, southern regional, southeastern regional director, Dove. Southeast, Of the American Jewish Committee. How many states do you have? Uh, Six. I got Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, North and South Carolina. Okay, terrific. And you've been there. It's been going on, what, eight eight years? Wow, eight years. And he's still only 36 years old. That's right. Amazing. (laughs) Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. A little bit uh, later in the show, we're going to get into some issues that relate very specifically to your uh, mission at the AJC. Um, So I'm really glad you could be here. But let's start, and of course, you can talk about anything you want while you're here, Dove. (laughs) Let's start with the news, Mary Margaret, that you have another Democratic entrant into the U.S. Senate race. Teresa Tomlinson was the first to jump in, the former mayor of Columbus. Uh, Then Ted Terry jumped into the race, the mayor, current mayor of Clarkston. And Sarah Riggs Amico, who ran for lieutenant governor, was the Democratic candidate in 2018, and who, a while back, announced she was forming an exploratory committee, has now formally launched her bid, despite the fact Uh, that her company, one of the largest car hauling companies in the country, declared bankruptcy not long ago, something like perhaps as much as $2 billion in pension debt. And she says that's one of the things that encouraged her to get into this race, understanding the problems that businesses are having. Sarah Miko ran a really good race, in my view. Of course, she did not win, but the lieutenant governor's race. And she made a lot of friends, and she presented herself in a very positive way as a business person who uh, employed a very large uh, union-based employment uh, employees. I, full disclosure, am supporting Teresa Tomlinson and um, think that Teresa has our best shot to win the republic win against the republican senator but we um have to support sarah's uh, energy and her nerve to do this i don't think it's the best time for her i think that she does have a future but i just don't think this year why is why the best isn't this year. the best year for her coming off a race so soon uh, and also 
Uh, this is a serious business issue that requires serious attention, and I think that she will strengthen her future uh, relationship with the voters if she attends to that first. I think that that will help her and help her political future. Okay, Mark, um, you know, she would make the point, I mean, she does say that she thinks the fact that her business, she's struggling, uh, it gives her a better sense of what American business people, Georgia business people go through. Uh, and it, it is certainly true that Nathan Deal won a successful race for governor, despite the fact that he had terrible uh, financial problems at the time that he ran. Uh, Brian Kemp had some financial difficulties that were a big part of the campaign, and yet he won Stacey Abrams uh, with her debts, which which Republicans tried to make an issue of, seemed to overcome that in the fact that she same, came so close to uh, Brian Kemp in the uh, in the general election. So all that said, what do you think Republicans will do with the failure of uh, Sarah's, uh, uh, Sarah Miko's business? You know, it is virtually incomprehensible that she would announce to run for Senate 20 days after filing a $2 billion bankruptcy. It was 20 days ago. This wasn't years ago. This wasn't during the Great Recession like Nathan Deal had to deal with. There were very difficult times for a lot of people in those days. This was 20 days ago, and I think her, I think there's going to be a lot of problems with the idea that she's going to go take a full-time job running for U.S. Senate instead of working full-time to deal with her creditor issues. Um, I don't, I don't, want to wax philosophic or be judgmental about her personally when I say that, and I mean that genuinely. But it is, there's, there's virtually no other Georgian that would bankrupt on $2 billion and 20 days later announce for U.S. Senate. What is wrong with her? Uh, I want to be careful about one aspect of this. I, 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 the $2 billion figure that's been thrown out there has been suggested as a possible uh, debt uh, it, it, you know, being that far in the hole, it, to the best of my knowledge, it isn't f- certain that that's the amount. But, Mark, nevertheless, your point is, his, his point is well made, Mary Margaret. Uh, it, it's big, no matter what. <laughs> and, and if I'm wrong on $2 billion and no, it's no, $1 no, billion, you're, That's I mean, been reported, on. but it's been reported as, like, what it possibly could amount to. I reflect also, personally, when I lost a campaign, a big campaign that I was thought I was going to be successful at, and my crowd of candidates, um, over half of them ran again for another office just two years later. I think there's a psychology of coming out of a campaign where somebody has told you you're wonderful and told you how great you're going to be, that you somehow have to extricate yourself from the world of political consultants, political pundits, who uh, have an opportunity to be influential. The fact that I waited a good number of years beyond two to run again, I think was enormously beneficial to me. Um, To what extent she's being influenced by the the vendor crowd in this race, to what extent she's been influenced by uh, whoever it was was the strongest supporter for her and the lieutenant governor is always curious to me. Um, because I've hired uh, consultants, I've fired consultants, I've sued consultants, I've congratulated consultants, I've got a lot of, <laughs> I've got a lot of reason to feel like I can credibly say who's influencing her to make this race at this time. Well, but it may be just as simple as you say. There are some people who get a ta- an appetite for running for office. Uh, you're out on the campaign trail. You've been through this. You're out on the campaign trail. People tell you how wonderful you are. You're shocked when you lose. But people then immediately start telling you again how wonderful you are and how you never should have lost the race. I mean, to, and that they're going to help you with money and that you're going to have a great time. And, you know who did a, an impressive thing um, after his loss? And this is a compliment to John Ossoff. John easily could have stepped right back into politics after losing to Karen Handel and run and raised a lot of money probably and probably still would realistically have not won. But he could have run for governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, or another office. And he took time to fix his private life a little bit, I think, and to kind of settle down this enormous rush of, as you say, consultants and vendors and the the folks that, that sort of make a living on political work. And he, he 
backed off. And I, th- I think that's why he's taken more seriously as a potential future candidate, because two losses at this point, and most people are, are out. And I do want to actually acknowledge one thing, Bill, just sure. what you pointed out. Um, it, it, I may have the number wrong on the $2 billion, and I don't want to say anything that's not true, but it is a, it's, it's a it's staggering a amount. Yeah, and, no and, and, and again, I really don't want to belabor this, yes. but no, that is the number that's been reported by media. It's just it's reported in the context of it could be as much as. I mean, we may find out that it's less, but you're right. It's still a staggering figure. Dove? Well, I, to me, one of the interesting things is going to be how many candidates we ultimately have on the Democratic side. I mean, if, if we look the, at the 7th district, is any sort of barometer for us, I mean, there's going to be a few more people that come into play, uh, as well as considering, you know, what other um, demographics want to uh, try to approach that seat. I think there's so if you got three candidates so far, you've got um, Teresa Tomlinson, Ted Terry, and now Sarah Riggs Amico. You know who are the other folks that are out there that are going to create a really tough primary fight? And to Mark's point, what sort of impact might that have in the future uh, for people running a, for another seat again? Because I believe it's still early in that mm-hmm. race. It's, it's still early, and we all are speculating. Uh, when I say all, all of us in the inside crowd, or there are a number of different opportunities for a credible African-American candidate to get in that race, and that's what I'm speculating to myself about it. The race is not complete yet. The candidates but are Purdue not Purdue is stronger than... I think the Republican candidates were in 2018 mm-hmm. because they were dealing with an open seat in a what ended up being sort of a watershed blue year with Congress going Democratic. Um, Purdue is, I think, in a substantially stronger position because his business background being focused on business, um, I think his political uh, life is in a better shape than maybe an open Purdue, seat. Purdue, I've, I've said that, and Mary Margaret, I, that uh, I think that Democrats are correctly concerned about how strong a candidate any Purdue incumbent, is. Any incumbent yeah, is going to be stronger. Purdue and polls better. His favorables are higher than Kemp's. They're higher than President Trump's in Georgia at this point. Interesting, since he's tied himself at the hip to President Trump, and yet he's got better approval numbers than the president does here. The only real racist that we have that judged Trump was the 18 elections, which was a repudiation of Trump. So pollsters are are relevant to me and they mostly act sometimes accurate uh very frequently accurate and they're they're certainly (laughs) relevant to an inquiry but i think the ground is just too uncertain right now for anybody to to know with a whole lot of confidence about what's going to happen with president trump in the next 15 months um, so, Dove, you're at an interesting place in terms of all this because you certainly pay attention to politics, but you're not of specifically right. elected politics, and certainly in Georgia. So, do you imagine that you, that people are paying much attention to this race outside those of us who are, you know, in rooms like this, making our living talking about politics and in, engaged in politics? <laughs> so, as as an Working for a nonpartisan organization that deals with politics, I probably have a pay a little more attention than most. But I, I do think that people are are maybe not right now, but when the primary season comes up and people have to think about who they're going to vote for, I do think that that's going to be when people are going to be talking about it. And there's going to be a lot of national uh, exposure to this because, as you mentioned, Senator Purdue is closely aligned with the president. He's got you know he's polling very well here in Georgia and. You know, similar to other races that we might have in Georgia, I think it's going to be people are going to be paying national attention here, and that'll influence what happens. So, as well. M- Mark, I want to uh, you know we we sort of pay attention to social media as the show is going on. Sometimes we try not to because there's so many people who have such unpleasant things to say about some of the people in the <laughs> studio. But uh, uh, a woman who tweets is Aaron on the side of caution has an interesting tweet. She says, I'm honestly shocked that Republicans can talk about what a weakness corporate bankruptcy is, given who the Republican president is at this very moment. <laughs> Point well taken. <laughs> uh, there is a difference that, again, we're talking a bankruptcy that was filed on August 7th. And it was her company's bankruptcy, not her personally, by the way. And that is an important distinction uh, for Sarah Miko. Sarah Miko personally did not. Um, but... The uh, uh, but but uh, while what you're saying is 
true. And what Aaron says, I think there is truth to that. Um, and there's always truth to people that get up on a high and mighty kind of approach and attack others when, frankly, members of their own party have committed sort of the same problems. But in this case, it, this is pretty egregious, I think. We're talking about the same month of a corporate bankruptcy, right. company bankruptcy. I, I, I think, Mary Margaret, we get a sense, if Amico should win the primary, uh, where a lot of Republican energy is going to be focused in, in this we get, race. We get the that message now. It's the timing of the bankruptcy. So, we get the message that will be coming right. forward. What it, It's... Um, it's hard to predict, is what I keep right. saying to myself. So before we leave this Senate uh, uh, race, l- let me ask you, as a supporter of Teresa Tomlinson's, a quick question. You know, uh, Teresa used to be a panelist on the show with mm-hmm. some regularity. Uh, we always enjoyed having her on the show. We knew from very early on that her sights were set on running in the Senate race. I'm having a hard time getting a handle. She's smart. She's appealing in many ways in terms of her ideas. I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around whether there's much traction at this point there or not. And you're a supporter of her, so I'd love your take on that. Well, I think we are more focused on Trump and and his viability and his day-to-day drama. Uh, We're always, at his intention, strategically, smartly or not, we're directed to look at him at a daily basis. And so I think any candidate running for the Georgia Senate seat is going to have a little trouble. But she has networks that we um, don't, that we can acknowledge as being real strengths. Um, Being a mayor of an important city in Georgia has put her in contact with all the mayors across the, and there are 500 cities out there across Georgia. Many of them are African-American mayors, men and women. Many of them are people who have worked closely with Teresa Tomlinson, and that's a tremendous asset. She also has an Atlanta base. She has a strong Democratic base, and she is got the Sweetbriar base. I mean, yeah. somebody who pulls Sweetbriar out of the ditch and put it back on uh, a viable college. There's, wait a minute, wait a minute. The sweet, she making to raise money out there. I think that it relates to money and it relates to moderates and it relates to people that dealt with her in a wide variety of contexts. That's the point I'm making. Oh, okay. Because what do we have, about four people from who graduated Sweetbriar in Georgia? You're not around the circles, (laughs) I am. (laughs) I think that she, the point I'm making is that she has a lot of different relationships across Georgia that are unique to her. And Columbus is a very important place in, in Georgia. Uh, I think that she brings a lot to the table, and I think it's uh, very, very early in the Georgia-U.S. Senate race. All right. Hey, let's do this. Um, I'd love to um, – oh, wait. Before we take a break, before we take a break, Dove, I'll bring you in in this one. Uh, Robert Jimison uh, just uh, pointed – and Tom, both in the control room, just pointed out something to me uh, that will – obviously become a bigger issue as the race goes on we got it there's a tweet from ted terry clarkson mayor running for u.s senate here's what he says and he seems to have some documentation within the tweet ted terry says i was proud to support barack obama when he ran for re-election it's unfortunate that not all of my opponents feel the same way and he appears to have a spreadsheet that shows that amico was giving money to mitt romney uh, when he was a candidate for president against uh, Obama, um, I we don't see we don't have the numbers. Terry seems to have some documentation of this. Uh, Dove, it's never good to be a Democrat giving money to a Republican. On the other hand, Teresa Tomlinson used to be a Republican, so who knows if they offset? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fair question, especially for moderates in Georgia. That might might be an asset. <laughs> I, uh, you you got to figure Ted Terry had this ready to go. I'm skipping right over Ted Terry. Uh, social media is relevant to politics, and yesterday my social media post was of course, what everybody else was in it. But in addition to recognizing National Dog Day yesterday, I said <laughs> that I was appearing on Nygut today, and what would they like me to talk about? Yeah. Nobody talked about asked me to talk about polling. Nobody wanted me to talk about who Mitt Romney got money from. They wanted to talk about the kind of mm-hmm. issues that Georgians talk about, transportation, health care, Medicaid expansion, climate change. So we are very, we always have to be mindful that very 
there's a limited audience for the insider talk about politics. As successful as this show is, it's because not only we talk about uh, insider stuff, we also talk about things across Georgia. Uh, to be, okay, I want to get to a break and because we, we have a lot more to talk about, but I do want to respond quickly to that because I think the point is well taken. We, this show routinely uh, takes up health care, transportation, uh, issues like uh, a right to choose or, uh, or right 481, to life right to life as well. I mean, so your, it, your tweeters are correct to say there are times we do inside politics, and we enjoy that. We like that, and so do well, I think a lot of our listeners. Uh, what do you got there? Just oh, f- you've Factually the- speaking, Amico <laughs> gave five contributions to Romney, okay. not one. And you know? they are uh, they're available. You can read yeah, them yourself but, but on FPC.gov. But Dove Wilker makes an interesting point. I mean, that may be appealing to She's some of the moderates. She's claiming that she switched uh, parties because of Obamacare and the Republicans opposed it, and yet... In 2000, I mean, in 2012, she opposed Obama and was donating to Romney. You tell me if that's legit. All right. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch how that unfolds. Uh, just put a period on it. Sarah Riggs Amico now in the U.S. Senate race. There are three Democratic candidates at this point, And who knows who else might join in? Let's get a break out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. Join us for GPB's gala event in the Fox Theater's Egyptian Ballroom on Saturday night, September 7th. The evening starts with a meet-and-greet cocktail reception with music legend Brenda Lee, followed by a three-course dinner and dancing with live music. We'll celebrate Brenda Lee's accomplishments in the world of entertainment as she's presented with the first GPB Georgia Legend Award. Go to gpb.org slash Brenda Lee to get your tickets before time runs out. The man who ran over and killed Heather Heyer at the 2017 Charlottesville rally is going to prison for life. Now activists hope to punish those who organized the rally. They talked about which weapons to bring, cracking skulls, and even whether they could claim self-defense if they drove cars into protesters, which is, of course, exactly what happened. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Dove Wilker, let me, let me start this conversation with you, because there's a really interesting effort underway at the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Paul Howard, the DA in Fulton, uh, leading the charge on this. Let's just go back in history very briefly. In 1913, uh, a young girl, I think 13 years old, mm-hmm. Mary Fagan, was found murdered at the uh, Atlanta Pencil Factory. Manager of the factory was a New York-born Jewish businessman, Leo Frank. We can go through a lot of a lot of a narrative here that we don't have to. We cut to the chase and say he was arrested for the crime on very little evidence, mm-hmm. convicted in a rather heated trial that took place literally in, a, in the hot summer. Um, There was a lot of question about the crowd that gathered outside the courthouse and were yelling things about Mm -hmm. convicting Leo Frank. He was convicted, went to Milledgeville. What happened? He was sent to the jail, prison in Milledgeville. What happened next? They uh, they, they commuted his sentence, and then uh, the uh, the The governor commuted commuted his death sentence. Correct. And he was in in prison, stand waiting for an appeal. Right. Go ahead. And then a mob came and got him out of the jail and drove him up to Marietta and strung him up and hanged him, lynched him from a tree in the middle of Marietta. Yeah, considered to be one of the worst hate crimes. Yeah. Uh, now we we have to say I, I always feel it's important to make this point. Leo Frank was one of the few white people ever lynched in the United States. Mm-hmm. But let's you know, put it in context. Black people were being lynched r- routinely, right. regularly, horrifically during the same uh, period of time and beyond. So I always feel like we've got to say that. Yeah, no, it's it's a fair it's a fair point. But the the mob was you know yelling Jewish uh, epithets and slander. I mean, they were just they were just rabid anti Semites, and they wanted to to take him and they wanted to kill him. And it didn't matter what the facts of the case were. And there's you know. Right now, there's a question of they're looking to officially. He was pardoned in 1983, I believe Six. it was 86. Yeah, um, but the it was a pardon based it, it on it was a the, conditional pardon. Yeah. It was Governor Joe Frank Harris, Mary Margaret, you'll know this, who they they couldn't exonerate him, 
So what they did was they said because he was kidnapped from Milledgeville prison while he was waiting for appeals to take place, uh, he was denied justice. And on that basis, uh, they decided to give him that kind of conditional pardon. Our friend Dale Schwartz was part of that active, mm -hmm. active, successful effort mm -hmm. to go partway towards uh, correcting bad facts of Georgia's history. And uh, I think it's time to renew a new examination of this case. We have a lot of discussion uh, within our legal community and within society about conviction of the innocents. Um, and we know that happens. Uh, we know it happens in today's world, and it certainly happened in the de in the era of Leo Frank for black and white citizens. I think this is a positive effort by the district attorney. I think there is a a, a, a excellent opportunity for further clearing of the record. But of, is it based on sentiment that he was treated wrong? I mean, you had Tom Watson. Uh, a, a, a former U.S. Uh, a member, a member of the U.S. House, a candidate for U.S. set for vice president at one point, uh, who, after Frank was convicted, whipped people into an anti-Semitic frenzy about Leo Frank. And Mark, one of the reasons he, that Frank was lynched in Marietta is that's where Mary Fagan, the young girl who was sadly murdered, was from. And my good friend Steve Oney, who wrote the definitive uh, book on this case, was the first to reveal that the lynch mob was made up of some of the finest, some of the most important citizens in Marietta, including the grandfather of uh, Marie Barnes, wife of former governor uh, uh, Roy Barnes, um, and, and other leaders in the community. So I wonder, sometimes, is this based on they're digging for facts, they're looking at evidence, or is this a, a feeling that an injustice would, was done and we'd better make a strong the statement? Well, I think there are an awful lot of cases that would be overturned in history were they put on trial today. And if we're looking at it, as we should, uh, knowing more ab about things that could have been done in those days that you couldn't do in those days. But um, it seems to me that if we're looking at it through the lens of um, 1914, it still was an egregious situation, regardless of you know anything else. And by today's standards, it sh that tr trial would not have happened as it happened. Um, there were there were open conversations about um, his religion. Um, there was information in the newspapers that was very public. There was not a sequestration of the jury. I do not believe um, th there would have been uh, my my understanding of it. And I do not pretend to be an expert on this topic, but. By today's standards, it there, would be over There were many reasons for appeal. Yeah, right. go ahead, well, Dave. I, I think one of the things that we should remember as well is that this was a significant anti-Semitic incident. Right. And for the Jewish community in the United States, it, it, is, it is known, it is taught. I mean, I'm from New Jersey. I went to school in New York, and I remember learning about the the, the murder of Leo Frank as a young child in New York. So it, the the implications today for revisiting the case, I think, is for the Jewish community, if not even for the state of Georgia, is very important Huge. because it would ha allow us, if if it turns out they can overturn it, then it would right a wrong that has been a stain on Georgia. It's also still relevant for Cobb County. You mentioned the, yeah. the people that were involved in the actual lynching. That's still a conversation in, in modern politics in Cobb County. Were you related to this lynch mob? Uh, I think that it's time. I think it would be a positive step for Georgia. Uh, to overturn this conviction, and I think that there are good people doing good work to make it happen. It is interesting. When I was in elementary school, this was a topic that we learned about as well. This really? was a, huh. This was a topic at Smoke Rise Elementary in Stone Mountain, where I went to elementary school. Um, we actually read about this and talked about this. And so it isn't something that Georgia has turned its back on in all these years, and I can say that just even looking at it when I would have been 13 well, years old. Well, there's a dove, there's a particular irony that Mark went to school in the shadow of Stone Mountain Park because one of the one of the developments that came out of the lynching of Leo Frank out of that no. entire uh, episode was the reformulation of the KKK, the KKK mm -hmm. right. who met on the on the top of Stone Mountain right. Park. It was also uh, the uh, event 
that propelled the organization that I at one point worked mm-hmm. for, the Anti-Defamation League, into new uh, status uh, as an American uh, civil rights organization. So there are all sorts of repercussions from yeah. the, the case. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. I was reading about it that the the facts that they have and are able to research now, it's going to be an additional challenge for them because once he was lynched, they sort of sort of moved on. They didn't interview um, any of the suspects <clears throat> thoroughly, which your friend Steve Oney, you know, yeah. he's got the Bible on, yeah. on the case. Once he was arrested, they, right. they stopped their inquiries. Exactly. Uh, they thought, and, and there was enormous pressure put on the, uh, the uh, cops in those days by the Atlanta Constitution. And the governor and, suffered yeah. politically for mm-hmm. doing a That's good right. thing. Governor Slayton, mm-hmm. when he issued the pardon... The story is, and there's no reason to think it wasn't true, he said to his wife, um, this will be the end of my career. Hmm. It, it not only was the end of his political career, but he had to flee Georgia with his wife because wow. crowds descended on his house, the governor's home, and were threatening to do violence to him. They fled the state. So it's a fascinating case. But let me put it into a larger context f- for a minute. It's interesting that Paul Howard takes this on at a time when we are examining, once again, the American soul, as it were, to say, what prejudices do we harbor? How are they being triggered right now uh, in a way that they haven't been for, uh, for some period of time? How have they been reawakened? Um, and so here, Mark, comes a district attorney, Democratic district attorney, uh, who says, let's see if we can lay this one to rest. An interesting, uh, in the context of the period, the time we're living in where hatred has become so prominent in our lives again. Well, just in responding to that, um, it's not, not only is your point valid, I think a lot of political people and a lot of media are now living almost entirely on dividing us all by race, by gender, by all demographics and um you know i don't i don't know if it's fair to say that this is something that to particularly attribute to howard or not but um paul howard has formed an innocence office in his da organization so this case of leo frank is a very important example of what other cases Mm. he clearly intends to bring and i applaud him for that Dove, is it? Are you having? Is it? Is is life at the American Jewish Committee uh, more challenging these days? Given, uh, I mean, what we're dealing with in the atmosphere of our times. Oh, absolutely. I mean, today I was at a, a I was at a lunch where I was talking about divisiveness in, in politics and the impact just within the Jewish community that we have, and the you know. Republican Jews don't necessarily want to talk to Democrat Jews. Democrat Jews don't want to talk to Republican Jews. I think what we're seeing on in society as a whole is clearly taking hold of the Jewish community as well. Um, finding opportunities for people to come together to address, you know, their differences of opinion. Uh, I couldn't think is a more important time, but it's more difficult for us to be able to do that because people don't necessarily want to enter into conversations to hear what somebody else thinks. They want to stick to their guns. They want to make sure that they're sort of the core of what they're arguing is uh, is strong. And you know, who cares what the other person says? It's time to talk about the president. Is that what you're suggesting? I do want to talk about, you know what? You want to get a break out of the way, and, and, and let's get our final break of the show out of the way a little earlier than usual, and when we come back, we'll do that. We're going to turn the page. We do want to talk a bit about uh, the president and the, the way in which he's been talking about the American Jewish community, of which he is not a part, obviously, and we'll do that after this break. Hi, I'm Ross Sorrell, GPB's reporter here in Atlanta, but I cover more than the state's largest city. I tell stories about the problems farmers in the southern part of Georgia are facing, and I report on transportation issues affecting the 13 metro Atlanta counties. We believe express lanes is our way to manage the amount of traffic or demand to give those users the reliable trip times that they're looking for. Stick with us to hear these stories and more. GPB News, stand with the facts. On the next Fresh Air, our Emmy week continues with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's nominated for her work on the comedy series Fleabag, which she wrote and stars in as a single woman who's a feminist but suspects she's a bad one. And we'll hear from Patricia Arquette and Ben Stiller, who are nominated for their work on Escape at Danamora. Join us. 
Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Let's talk for a couple minutes. I just handed uh, uh, Mark Roundtree, who runs Landmark Communications, founder and your president, right? Isn't that the title? CEO? What's the title you give yourself? President of Landmark Communications. Very nice. Okay. Uh, Dove Wilker, who is the uh, regional director, Southeast Regional Director of the anti of the no, American <laughs> Jewish Committee, is here. And Mary Margaret Oliver, state representative from Decatur, is uh, with us as well. Uh, Dove, let's listen. Last week, the president caused quite a flap. Before the break, we talked about uh, the fact that... Um, there's a, there's a division now with the American Jewish community that you're quite aware of. And let's talk about whether the president is making that better or worse. Here are two. Well, let's play first. The first thing he had to say about uh, Democrats who support, um, uh, I mean, Jewish Americans who support Democrats in, in an election. Let's listen. I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, uh, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. He was talking, of course, about, um, you know, he was riffing on uh, uh, Ilan Omar, the, the squ so-called squad, which he says have behaved in anti-Semitic ways. And to some extent, Ilan, yeah. Ilan Omar has made some comments that I think people can rightfully look at questionably. So... That happened one day, and then people got very upset about that uh, and went back at him and asked him about it a second day. And here's what he said the second day. In my opinion, the Democrats have gone very far away from Israel. I, I cannot understand how they can do that. They don't want to fund Israel. They want to take away foreign aid to Israel. They want to do a lot of bad things to Israel. In my opinion, you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Jewish people, and you're being very disloyal to Israel. And only weak people would say anything other than that. Okay, so, uh, Dove, to you first. Um, number one, why is it when the president talks about disloyalty to Israel that that raises the hackles of many American Jews? Yeah, so the question of dual loyalty is something that Jewish communities around the world have been facing for millennia. I mean, we've always been sort of put into two different buckets because we're Jews have always been seen as the other. So whether it was you're not loyal to America because you are loyal to Jews first or once the state of Israel was founded, it became, oh, you're more loyal to the state of Israel than you are to America. It, it, it's clearly it, it, the, the loyalty charge is something that we've responded to for many members of Congress, unfortunately, over the past few years. But it's something that really creates concern in the community because we are Americans. I mean, I'm an American. I also am Jewish. And that's, you know, it's two parts of my identity. But to question, you know, to whom am I more loyal is something that, you know, we, the Jewish community takes great concern. So, with. Mark, there is the kind of uh, aspect of this that creates some concerns about prejudice. But there is a very simple political equation in all of this as well. The one thing where you could almost always count on bipartisan cooperation uh, in American politics was support for Israel. And um, it, it is certainly true that uh, Ilan Omar, maybe Rashida Tlaib have opened a door at, a little bit towards, towards people wondering what's going on here in terms of their um, feelings about Israel specifically, not necessarily Jews, but Israel. But yet the president is driving a wedge between partisan groups. Everybody supports Israel in this country for the most part in terms of members of Congress. Yes, they do. Um, but this has been a growing, it depends on your point of view, from my point of view, problem within the Democratic Party. And there is a splinter group in the Republican Party as well, though I think it's a much smaller group, um, that even going back to Cynthia McKinney as a, a congresswoman, there has been a growing number of people in the Democratic Party that are at best not supportive of Israel and at worst I, th I think are fairly clearly racial in how they approach things. Um, but, you know, but if you look at Georgia but, just but yesterday. Cynthia, Cynthia McKinney was an outlier. I mean, wasn't she back in that? We're talking well, now. Well, if you're, if, you're if you're part of the squad, she was a pioneer. 
So you got to look at it how you want to look at it. But I mean, you know, I assume Mary Margaret, you were a constituent of McKinney's at one point. I, I was a constituent. Um, it, these are these are things that aren't secrets in Georgia. What's interesting is I was driving on 285 yesterday, and I drove directly past an intersection right near uh, Cobb Parkway. I think it was at Billy McKinney intersection. It said and on a sign. And uh, Billy McKinney was probably most famous for his final days where he goes on video, and I bet you still on YouTube, where he is screaming at the camera that the loss of Cynthia McKinney was due to the words, Jews, Jews, yeah. Jews. He's screaming yeah, that, that, that was a horrendous episode in Georgia politics, no doubt about that. Mary Margaret, you remember it well. Here's what is not an insider conversation and is the most damaging possible thing to our society and our democracy, and that is the use of bigotry and wedge issues to divide people. We know that that is the president's strategy. Everybody knows that. And to use Israel as a, his newest wedge issue and polarizing, further polarizing, a community that really, I, I agree with Dove, was a bipartisan support in general. For, clearly, Billy McKinney and Cynthia McKinney do not represent the views of the congressional district they represent, which includes the Beth Jacobs Committee and five other, right. five other synagogues right in my district on La Vista Road. It's ridiculous that we keep falling in. It's, it's, it's not ridiculous. It's tragic that we keep falling into this trap of being met, being following this strategy of bully divisiveness that the president uses, and he's found a new way to use it, well, Israel. Know, one of the things that I think we should always remember is the, one of the great successes of the American Jewish community has been the bipartisan support for Israel. And, you know, the squad represents four members of Congress. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot more. There's 431 other members, of which 398 at least are supportive of the U.S.-Israel relationship. And that's something that we need to continue to to talk about and to promote because it, it, it's it's what benefits America. You know, the U.S.-Israel relationship is about American values. It's about the Middle East. It's about sustaining democracies. I mean, Israel is one of only, I believe it's 10 countries who's had a continual democracy for the last 70 plus years. Think about that. The Republican messaging, to use the word squad, uh, is uh, very, very heartbreaking, troubling. These are beautiful young women who successfully... I thought they this. called themselves... Yeah, I thought they named people. themselves yeah. the squad. Now, the president may use it derogatory, in a derogatory manner, but right. I think they called themselves the squad. These are beautiful the young women who represent diversity in our society, who are successfully drawing attention positively and negatively, as many do politics. But to, to message this about this... To, to use the president's strategy, to follow the president's strategy of Israel is a wedge issue and we can blame these young women over here as part of it is very disheartening. I, you know, I, okay, I don't want to go too much further with this because to me, one of the most interesting aspects of it is are we going to end up being more divisive about a country, Israel, that, this, mm. that America supported for since its founding? How can we not? But, but okay, Mark... Rashida Tlaib and Alan Omar, especially, I, I think, uh, you know, Presley and Ocasio-Cortez, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, the president likes to lump them all together, but I, I do think the two of them, uh, Tlaib and uh, Omar, they have opened the door. You know, they 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 were going to do they were probably inappropriately denied entrance to Israel and members of Congress. It is also interesting, the point is made by Republicans that the entire trip they were making, there was no effort at all to balance it between Palestinian vis visits in Palestinian territories and with Israeli leaders. I have to say, I look at that and say, clearly they are interested in promoting the Palestinian cause without regard to what they might learn from Israel. I, I have to say, I think it's fair to be critical. The president's prejudicial conduct in terms of them, to me, goes over the edge. What do you say to that? Well, I think that uh, Trump goes over the edge, as you put it, on a lot of issues, as <laughs> yeah. does Bernie Sanders, as does Trump. I mean, excuse me, as does 
uh, Biden, as does Warren, as does, I mean, they're running for president. All of these people are president or running for president, um, excluding the squad, obviously. I'm talking about the presidential candidates. And they, this is the job, in a way, of a presidential candidate is to draw attention to their point of view and to try to win votes. Um, I don't see any value in, and you know, I, I won't, let me not talk about that. Um, I was going to disagree with you on something, Mary Margaret, but I don't think that's appropriate for the show. But I, I do think that um, that uh, the call them what you will, the squad is a uh, very divisive um, group on the issue. And, and Bill, you can't just say that it's limited to four people. And I, I Bill, wouldn't say that. Can I, you I, I, you I have that. Hank Johnson calling yeah. Right. The, yeah. the settlers right. termites. Yeah. I mean. You have yeah. Farrakhan. You have Cory Booker regularly meeting with Farrakhan. Wait, this is let me. I, I, okay. okay, okay. This is what's wrong. We, I, you know, we work so hard at respectful conversation, and every now and then we run into an issue where it quickly escalates. And I understand that the passions are intense. Well, I think we're being respectful. No, no, here. I know that, but it gets more intense. Um, it strikes. So I'm going to move on because I want to talk about polling for at least a couple minutes. But it does strike me that the bottom line on this dove is it's making it harder for Israel to have a sure and constant, consistent friend here if the president chooses to divide American Jews up on the basis of whether they're for or against I, Republicans uh, and de- or Democrats. I'm struggling with that. I mean, I, I think that the Ameri- I think the American community supports the U.S.-Israel relationship, and I think for the okay. most part we recognize who the outliers are as a part of that conversation, and not just the Jewish organizations, but there's a lot of you know non-Jewish organizations that further the relationship with Israel, business, technology, defense. I mean, it, it's it goes so much deeper yeah. than just what I, the president. Fair enough. Says. All right, all right, um, all right. Let's get one last subject, and we're not going to get as much time as I'd hoped on it. Um, Mark Roundtree, you're the pollster. Uh, uh, Monmouth just released a poll which shows now. The Democratic field nationally is tied. Joe Biden has dropped pretty precipitously uh, yeah. from his lead. And now you've got Warren and Sanders in the Monmouth poll at like 20 percent apiece. Biden with 19 percent uh, left. Uh, so there's that. Um, we also have matchups, fantasy matchups between Trump and virtually every Democratic candidate. In most cases, the Democrats beat Trump. <laughs> Here we are in August of 2019. Mr. Polster, should we be paying any attention to these polls at all? No, but not for the usual reason that it's just early. (laughs) And that is that we need to see who Trump will not probably lose, I don't think, to a Democratic candidate in a head-to-head race, but that will not be the environment. The environment will be a Democrat probably on the extreme left of the Democratic Party. Biden is sinking at this point, and um, I I kind of agree with other folks that have mentioned. I think that he is in serious political trouble. Um, I, I think that um, you'll probably end up being Warren or Harris. Um, that'll lead that ticket. But what the what we don't see yet is who is that third candidate, that Ross Perot candidate, or that that Anderson candidate that was in the race with the third candidate, an ind- a true independent <laughs> candidate. They normally come. Anderson was a Republican congressman. Yeah. Uh, Perot was nominally Republican. Um, and it's really those candidates that are center-right that kind of end up, um, c- can a lot of times mess up a presidential election for incumbents. And that's, that's my point, is that we, you know, the people that are running as the third-party candidates right now, they're, they're nothing. It's who is going to be that 8% candidate that may strip Trump of the presidency. Uh, Mary Margaret, I'm old enough that I interviewed John Anderson when he was running as an independent <laughs> candidate for president. Um, the polling does point out the dilemma Democrats have, the electability as opposed to the candidates who push the envelope on the, the progressive issues that some want. It, it's, a, it's a dilemma for your party. It, it's, it's a fascinating political time, f- primarily focused this year on the Democratic primary. Obviously, the mistake that was made by the Republican hierarchy to allow Donald Trump to move forward uh, if to whatever extent they were in control, um, the mistake of the American people, who of course majority did vote not for him, but uh, the the 16 election is so devastating at this time that the is so significantly damaging to our world uh, leadership to 
uh, all the things we know are being damaged by the divisiveness of the president creates a extensively uh, energetic focus on Democratic candidates. Um, I think it's still very unknowable as to who's going to win this thing. I'm interested in your prediction. I'm, I'm listening carefully. Um, I think it's unknowable at this point, and there's so much that is left to be decided, particularly in terms of not having any elections yet. I'm trying to discipline myself to not go over the edge of my hysteria and anxiety until at least <laughs> that until. strikes me. That strikes me as so correct. Um, it, it, we are so early in this process that all these concerns about, you know, who's going to emerge... The candidate who will emerge is the candidate who, starting in January and February, wins caucus in Iowa, wins a primary in New Hampshire. This this will settle in a very dramatic way by the time we get into early next year. I think I believe that there are five or six candidates, five, six, seven, maybe candidate, Democratic candidates that are viable at this point. You, you know, be really entertaining would be to take those five, five or six candidates and have each of them debate the president. Do yeah. a twenty-minute debate, right? How, how, it would be entertaining. I mean, it'd be fascinating. It'd be interesting. It'd be entertaining. Which is why you're in the world of uh, nonprofits and civil rights, and not a campaign consultant. Exactly. Uh, that, that's for sure, Wilker. Um, one last uh, quick thing, Mark. Do, would you, as a as a pollster with a great reputation, how? Do you want to be polling a year out of a race? Do you can you get valuable results that you can pass on either to a client, a, a, a political client, or a media partner? We will be doing that very soon. Um, oh, actually, you will? Yeah, yeah. The next time I'm on your show, probably. When are you coming back? With those figures? Two weeks. Good deal. It's a um, deal. <laughs> but I will tell you, uh, the biggest problem. In, in, this is just quick. Biden's biggest problem is that his story is not compelling. There's not. He's not hitting it with. Warren is compelling, Harris is compelling, and Sanders is compelling, and then you have basically um, Biden in collapse. Somebody is going to emerge as, and I, I don't think it'll be Sanders, because I think Sanders is probably topped out at 20%. But, but wouldn't you agree that, that the anxiety that Mary Margaret is feeling will resolve itself? This is so early, you know, it's too early to worry about that. Hillary Clinton was 20 points ahead of Barack Obama at this point in uh, in their race speaking against of, one uh, another. Speaking of a party putting a candidate <laughs> onto the people, <laughs> right. Trump won without superdelegates. All right. We are completely <laughs> out of time uh, for today's show. Dove Wilker, Thank Mary you. Margaret Oliver, Mark Rountree, it was really a pleasure to have you all here for a terrific conversation. Um, I'm Bill Nygut. We've got uh, another show for you at 2 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, Theron Johnson's going to be coming back, and Jackie Cushman will be here with him. They are always interesting together, so we'll see you tomorrow at 2. Political Rewind with Bill Nygut is produced by Tom Faust and Robert Jemison. Our engineer is Jesse Neiswanger with help from Alex Word and Deborah Gilbert. Bradley Gaines, Sarah Callis, and myself, Carly Browder, are our interns. If you miss any part of this show or want to listen to previous shows, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and always at gpbnews.org.